This is Leaving Laodicea, the online podcast of Steve McCraney. I'm glad you're here. Stay tuned, because we've got some exciting things in store for you. Hang tight. You can't handle the truth. We uh, had been going through the Sermon on the Mount, and as we got to the point about God moving in His Spirit and stuff of that nature, we took a detour, and I didn't realize how long that detour was until I prepared this message this week, and that detour took place last October. And since last October until just last week, we've been talking about the Holy Spirit. We've talked about who the Holy Spirit is, what the Holy Spirit does. We've talked about the spiritual gifts, gone into great detail that we find in 2 Corinthians chapter 12. We've, uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 12, we've talked about controversial phrases such as praying in tongues or uh, having a gift of prophecy or the word of knowledge. We've talked about praying in the Spirit where the Scripture teaches that. We've talked about being baptized in the Spirit. And we've uh, tried to get a handle theologically and doctrinally and biblically on what these truths mean. But for the last couple of weeks, my prayer has been that it becomes more than just a mental exercise for you, that it actually becomes something real. That you find yourself leaning more on the Holy Spirit, trusting more of the Holy Spirit, being less afraid of the Holy Spirit. And, and I hope, I hope that is, uh, that's what's been happening in your lives. We're back in Matthew chapter 5, talking about the Sermon on the Mount. And um, as, uh, as I shared with you when we began this, that the Sermon on the Mount is Jesus basically laying out for us what life is like in the kingdom. And you have to understand, when you and I got saved, we were translated or transformed from the kingdom of this world, which all its rules are really guarded or are, are governed by self and by Satan, and we're translated into his kingdom. Well, there's totally different rules. There's totally different realities. There's, there's truths that we can hold on to based on faith, but they go contrary to this world. In this world, if somebody comes up and assaults me or maligns me or says something evil about me or puts me down or gossips about me, our response, of course, is to defend ourselves. No, I'm going to take it to you even worse. The old mantra, you know, you come at me with a knife, I'm going to come at you with a gun. Remember the story? Send one of my guys to the hospital. I'm going to send one of your guys to the morgue. You know, we, we, we respond that way. We have the legal professions that allows us to do those kind of things. And, but in his kingdom, he says that he's the one that avenges. He's the one that takes care of everything. After all, he is our father and he is God almighty. And so when someone smites us on the one cheek, punches us in the face, takes something from us, our response, contrary to our flesh and everything we've ever been taught, is to let them have that or turn the other cheek also. Is that hard? It's impossible. If someone wants something from me, I'm to give it to them. Well, if I do that, then I'm going to give them everything and I'm going to have nothing. Well, again, in his kingdom, tell me what I possess that was not given to me as a gift anyway. Well, I earned it. Well, you earned it by the breath that God gave you and the job that he allowed you to have and the, the physical ability that you have. And, and so Jesus began his ministry in Matthew chapter 5, 6, and 7 by laying out life in his kingdom. These are the rules that govern those that belong to him. And it begins with the positive and it continues with the negative. Here's the positive. Matthew chapter 5, verse 3 through 10. These are what we know as the Beatitudes. Chapter three, or chapter 5, verse 3, blessed are the poor in spirit. Really? I, I don't think poor anything was blessed. Verse number 4, blessed are those who mourn. Really? I thought blessed people are those people who are just excited about stuff. Verse number 5, blessed are the meek. What? To me, meek means like wimpy. And I thought you would like, blessed are the Rambos, blessed are the Terminators, blessed are the, those kind of, the Rockies and... No. Verse number six, blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. How can anybody who hungers and thirsts for anything be blessed in the way we think? 
Verse number seven, blessed are the merciful. Verse number eight, blessed are the pure in heart. Blessed are the peacemakers. Blessed are those, verse 10, who are persecuted for righteousness sake. The positive. We've talked about this. You you would line your life up to what it says here and things change. After that, we have the promised results. And this is what we find in verse number 11 through 12. If you follow the Beatitudes, you can expect a reaction from your friends and neighbors, families, and the world in general. And that is the fact that you're going to face persecution because we are light of the world and the enemy wants to stamp out the light. Verse number 11, blessed are you, it's now personal. When they revile and persecute you and say all manner of evil against you falsely, why? Because you're a jerk? No, for my sake. Rejoice and be exceedingly glad, for great is your reward in heaven, for so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Very personal in verses number 11 and 12. And then he goes on to say, understanding the positive and understanding the result of what's going to happen if you live in my kingdom, you need to understand the only way we're able to do this is realize that our life is not our own. We're not in this for ourselves. There's a purpose why God created us. We find that in verses 13 through 16. Well, who am I? Well, you are the salt of the earth. But if the salt loses its flavor, how shall it be seasoned? It is then good for nothing to be thrown out and trampled underfoot by men. You are the salt of the earth. That's what I've created you to be. If you're not the salt of the earth, you're really worth nothing. You live your 70 plus years, you accumulate your meager possessions, you wheeze like a dying animal on your deathbed and you die and people remember you for a generation, maybe a generation and a half, and then you're gone. Do you know who your great, 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 great grandfather was? No, we don't. And so life means nothing unless you line up, realize that it's not about you, it's about him. Verse 14, you are the not A, you are the light of the world. And because of that, a city, uh, a city that is set on a hill cannot be hidden. Nor do they light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a lampstand that it gives light to all who are in the house. Let your light, it's personal now, show shine, so shine before men that they may see your good works and glorify your Father in heaven. Okay. But then he tells us that little things matter. The stuff that we blow off, the stuff that doesn't seem important to us, are profound importance to the Lord. Listen, verse 17 through 19. Do not think that I came to destroy the law or the prophets. I did not come to destroy, but to fulfill. For assuredly, I say to you, till heaven and earth pass away, the end of time, the destruction of the universe, not one jot or one tittle, by no means will pass from the law until all is fulfilled. And I shared this with you probably in September, about a jot and tittle. It's even smaller than an apostrophe. It's a curl on the end of one of the Hebrew letters. I mean, it's the smallest stroke of a pen. Whoever therefore breaks one, one, not the greatest, thou shall not murder, but one of the least of these commandments, because little things matter, And teaches men so shall be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever does and teaches them, he shall be called great in the kingdom of heaven in the reality that really matters. Verse 19, of course, we have the whoever therefore. And in verse 20, it's a verse we're going to look at a little bit today. We have the for I say to you. Verse 20. For I say to you. That unless your righteousness exceeds the righteousness of the scribes and Pharisees, you will by no means enter the kingdom of heaven. You will by no means understand all the blessings and the positives that have been given to you. It will not happen unless your righteousness exceeds something else. This is the concluding statement on all the positive part of the first part of the Sermon on the Mount. Jesus said, for I say to you, let me tell you the truth here. I'm going to draw this to a close. Unless your righteousness, and I shared this with you in October. Let me go ahead and kind of tell you what these words mean. Jesus says, for I, Jesus, say to you, this is personal, that unless, literally except, 
If not, it's an additional phrase. This has to happen. Unless your, again, it's personal, your righteousness, your holiness, your attachment to Christ, unless your righteousness, and this word means of the condition of your heart and your soul and your life that is acceptable to God. It means virtue. It means justice. In both the Old and New Testament, righteousness is the state commanded by God and standing the test of his judgment. It is conformity to all all that he commands and all that he appoints. Time for reflection. How is my righteousness? Well, my righteousness is okay. I'm better than I was. I'm not as good as I should be, but I'm kind of comfortable where I'm at right now. There's some sins that I've given up. There's some sins I still hold on to. There's some stuff that I'm just not going to walk away from because it's too hard. And the scripture says that unless my righteousness exceeds something, and the standard here is the righteousness of the scribes and Pharisees. It's a, it's a comparison statement, and it's an if-then statement. To exceed, it literally means, shall abound still more. That's a, trans, a, a proper translation, or a more fuller translation of the word exceed. It means to be in excess or overflowing. It is not merely comparative, but it's an abundance. Unless your holiness, your righteousness, light of the world, city on a hill, and the purity for God, unless your righteousness overflows, exceeds, is abundance, even more so than the righteousness of the scribes and Pharisees, the condition is you ain't going to enter the kingdom of heaven. Because God's standards are they're pretty exact. Now, Christ has provided a way for us, but not the haphazard, carnal kind of way that is kind of preached today. The scribes and the Pharisees basically had the highest form of human religious righteousness available. You and I couldn't even hang with those guys. We can't hang with a Mormon. You know, if you want to look at, look at just externals and the way people live, their lives are far more, more, as we would say, holy or religious than ours are. And we have a tendency of just blowing it all off. Oh, that's law. This is grace. It really doesn't matter. God's just some good fella upstairs. Some, some buddy of mine is just going to take care of me. He just loves me and forgives me. And it's always grace, 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 grace. Never an accountability. And none of that is true. Unless your righteousness exceeds the righteousness of the scribes and Pharisees, you'll by no means enter the kingdom of heaven. And then Jesus begins to talk about the negative part. Uh, I don't know what that means, God. What, what, what do you mean by my righteousness? Can you give me some examples? Like how about uh, murder and how about divorce and how about lying and how about cheating and how about, uh, how about sexual sins and how about all those kind of things? Can you explain to me what his righteousness is compared to my righteousness? And that's the next section of the Sermon on the Mount. Anger. Matthew 5, you have heard it was said to those of old. This is how the Pharisees believed it. This is where it comes from in the Old Testament. This is the law. You've heard it said in the old that you shall not murder. We're not going to murder. Murder is a terrible thing. There's consequences for murder. If I murder someone and I don't get away with it, I'll spend the rest of my life in jail. So I don't want that to happen. I would never murder anybody. You've heard that it was said of old, you shall not murder. Whoever murders will be in danger of the judgment. But then Jesus said, but then I say to you, and he doesn't talk about murder anymore. He talks about anger. Oh, yeah, I can get angry all the time. I'm angry now. I'm really angry. You, you, can, you can make me angry today. I can have road rage on the road out there. I can go to work and somebody blinds me, takes something from me, assaults my rights, say something that they shouldn't say to me, or a family member doesn't obey me or do what they say or whatever it is. I'm going to get really angry. As a matter of fact, there's people in my life I'm still angry with. I would never murder but I live in anger. And Jesus says, you don't understand the law. The law says that they're both the same. Lust. We look at verse number 27. You have heard it said that to those of old, you shall not commit adultery. I would never commit adultery. If I commit adultery, then somebody would tell my wife about it or I could lose my job or my kids won't love me anymore. That's a terrible thing. I will never commit adultery, yet I can think about it. I can lust about it. I can look at porn. I can look at uh, sexually 
tempting things on television or the internet. I can, I can daydream, I can fantasize, I can check a girl out as she's walking. Man, I can do all that. But that's okay, that's acceptable. But I've never committed adultery. And Jesus says they're both the same thing. The law governs your outward behavior. And so the Pharisees said, as long as our outward behavior is okay, we're fine. And Jesus says, no, the intent of the law was to govern your heart. Goes on. Divorce. Verse 31. Furthermore, it has been said, here's the law, whoever divorces his wife, let her get a certificate of divorce. But I say to you, you can't do that. There's only one reason, or really there's two reasons in scriptures for divorce, and it is not irreconcilable differences. And it's not the fact that you want somebody younger or nicer or or makes you feel better. It's not about your happiness. We have honesty. Verse 33, again, you've heard it said of old, you shall not swear falsely, but shall perform your oaths to the law, to the Lord, which means that your word doesn't mean anything, so you have to put at the end of it, I'll swear to God. I swear to God, I'm telling you the truth. Well, isn't your word good enough? You've lied so much in the past that you have to throw that stuff on there so we really believe what you're saying today. It's the same thing in the law. The negative, vengeance, human justice, verse 38. You've heard it said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. But I say to you, do not resist an evil person. But whoever slaps you on the right cheek, turn to him the other also. It's the same thing. Love for your enemies. Verse 43, you've heard that it was said you shall love your neighbors and hate your enemy, but I tell you to do exactly the opposite, to love your enemies and pray for those and bless those who do evil to you. I mean, how how is that even possible? Well, it's not. It can't be done in our kingdom. But the whole point of the Sermon on the Mount by the inspiration and the empowerment of the Holy Spirit that we talked about for four months is to be able to live this way by His strength. It's the only thing that brings true happiness and true lasting peace. Let's just, let's just go back to verse number 21. And we're, just, we're not going to break this apart this week. We're going to look more in detail on it next week. But let's just see what it says here couple strange phrases. You have heard it said to those of old, you shall not murder. And whoever murders will be in danger of the judgment. And Jesus says, but I say to you that whoever is angry with his brother without a cause, not really sure what that means, shall be in danger of the judgment. Two, whoever says to his brother, Raka, shall be in danger of the council. Three, whoever says, you fool, shall be in danger of hell fire. I'm I'm looking at this and I'm seeing what Jesus said and I'm going, I got a couple questions, probably the same questions you have. First, I understand murder. I understand how that's a bad, evil thing. We're not talking about killing on a battlefield. We're not talking about self-defense. If you really look at, um, at what it's talking about here in Exodus, it's talking about the intentional, premeditated taking of a life. It says, I understand murder, but, uh, I don't understand what danger of the judgment means. Whose judgment? Is it man's judgment? Is it, is it God's judgment? And it says that without cause, what cause justifies my anger? In other words, obviously there's a caveat here that if I'm angry with somebody without a cause, then these terrible things happen. But if I'm angry with somebody with a cause, then obviously my anger is justified, like a righteous indignation or something of that nature. Because even Jesus got angry at the scribes and Pharisees, remember? And so what's the difference here? What's the cause? And then this Raka thing. I mean, and if I say to my brother, Raka, you know why it's translated Raka? Because there's no real easy translation in the English for this word. It's a, it's a, it's a phrase of, of derision. I mean, it means blockhead. It means stupid. It means worthless. It means a moron. It means an empty-headed fool. It means far less than what you and I call each other. And for what you, when you and I say about other people we don't like on Facebook or how we trash people of a different political persuasion or, or maybe or somebody who said something bad to us. I mean, calling somebody just stupid is harmless in our society today, but that's pretty much what the word raka means. And then 
if you say that, you're in danger of the council. I mean, what council are we talking about here? And what can this council do? And then it talks about the very end. But whoever says, you fool, shall be in danger of hellfire. What we don't understand is this is really a form of blasphemy. Because we're basically calling someone created in the image of God not worthy of the breath and even that, that they're, they're even breathing. Who are you and I? to make that call no matter how bad someone has hurt us. And does this mean that if I call someone fool that I'll be in danger of losing my salvation? I mean, that that can't mean that because my salvation is permanent. Or does it mean that maybe I really wasn't saved in the first place in order for me to have those kind of bitter feelings towards me? I mean, I have a lot of questions, don't you? And we're going to deal with these questions next week. You've heard... It was said to those of old, you shall not murder, and whoever murders will be in danger of the judgment. This is an easy one. The whole shall not murder in danger of the judgment we find from Exodus 20, 13, and also from Genesis 9, 6. Genesis 9, 6 says pretty much a man takes another man's life and his blood will be be uh, uh, required of him. It's a capital punishment thing. And Exodus 20, verse 13, of course, lays out in the Ten Commandments that you shall not murder. Got that. You've heard of old, you shall not murder, and whoever murders will be in danger of the judgment. But here's the, here's the part that we really don't understand. Um, years and years and years and years ago, well, let me rephrase that. Certain times in my life, people have spoken something to me, and they have just resonated. Bing! Gosh, that's a, that's a truth I want to hold on to. I don't know, 10, 12 years ago, Vic said something. We were talking about these very passages, and we're talking about the fact, I made this statement that it seemed like every time someone tried to get close to Christ, the rich young ruler or something of that nature, that he raised the bar. Hey, I'll follow you anywhere. Well, really, why don't you sell everything you have, get to the point, and then come follow me. Gosh, Lord, why are you trying to make it so hard? And Vic made a comment at the end of a worship service that resonated with me and says he never raised the bar. He just showed people how high the bar was in the first place. So true. Because what happens is God's bar is perfect. And what we do by our, our rules and laws and our interpretation of God's word, like the scribes and Pharisees, we try to reduce it down to a level that only governs our behavior but never governs our intent or never governs our heart. And the idea in the Old Testament was the fact that, that God chose a people and he said that these people are going to follow me and they're going to be my people. I'm going to bless them and I'm going to carry them out on the eagle's wings and I'm going to feed them for 40 years. I'm going to bring them into a land of, of milk and honey, which they didn't have to, to prepare for. I'm going to give them all these things if they would simply align their life with me. And the assumption was that their hearts would be changed. And so when God is laying out the laws for them, he's laying out the laws for them that would basically show what the outward behavior would be for someone with a changed heart. Make sense? All the laws that we pass today only govern our behavior. They never govern our heart. You see these videos about these police officers who pull these people over and all of a sudden a big crowd comes around and, and he's trying to do his job and a person maybe had broken the law, but he's just belligerent and he's just angry and he's yelling and, and okay, I can make you pay the fine. I can take you to jail. The judge can sentence you to prison, but I can't change your heart. Laws never change morality. They just govern behavior. And what Jesus is saying every time in here, but I say to you, he's trying to show them what the original intent was of God's law. The original intent wasn't just to keep people from murdering each other. The original intent was to show that you can't be angry with somebody because murder comes from anger. I mean, you don't wake up and your arm just go out and shoot somebody. The fact is you think about it or there's a passion involved. There's, a, there's some sort of emotion involved. There's an anger that it gets, gets released. Laws govern external actions or so it seems to us and seems to them. Kind of like James Dobson always told the story about um, the... Um, the little boy who was being fed by his mom in a high chair and he kept standing up. And the mother kept telling him, sit down. Sit. If you don't sit down, I'm going to spank you. And so finally the boy sits down and he's going, you know, I'm sitting down on the outside, but on the inside I'm standing up. It's all, it's all in bread in us. The law can make you conform, but in the 
in the Old Testament law and what Jesus is saying here is all of you people have basically taken God's law to conform to outward behavior that doesn't change the heart. And what I say to you in every one of these issues is a heart issue. It's not about adultery, which is the fruition of lust. It's about lust. It's not about murder, which is the fruition of anger. It's about the anger. It's not about giving an oath and violating your oath. It's the fact that your words haven't been true in the first place, so you have to throw an oath on top of it just so people will believe you. It's a, it's a character issue. Jesus is showing us that the true intent of the law, what the true intent of the law is by contrasting it with the human understanding of it. In other words, the only, only actions matter in the minds of men, but with the Lord, everything comes from the heart. Listen carefully. Everything comes from the heart. We come to church on Sunday and we praise the Lord by singing some songs. Occasionally, occasionally, we get caught up in worship where all of a sudden they're singing the songs and, and, or maybe just listening to the music and all of a sudden we're kind of transported into the glory of God and how wonderful and how glorious he is. And we find ourselves even surrounded by other people, just caught up in his adoration. Most of the time, we just come and sing. We come to church and we, we uh, study God's word, and sometimes when we do that, all of a sudden, the words just take us to a place we've never been before, and they change us and convict us and encourage us and exhort us, or whatever he wants to do in our life, and we see something that just incredibly changes our life here and when we walk out of here and tonight with our family and tomorrow at the workplace. And it's incredible. But most of the time, we come to church and we study something and go, wow, I learned something different today. That's kind of cool. But then we walk out of here with this kind of schizophrenic mind where that's real life and this is just church life and nothing changes. Or we see what the Word says about adultery or see what the Word said about lust or anger or murder or, or whatever, yet we're in a relationship that we're not willing to give up because we're getting some gratification from it. And that's what the Bible teaches, but I don't really care because my view of God is that He's okay with my sin because I'm okay with my sin and I want to make God to have my mind rather than me have the mind of Christ. And Jesus is saying you're missing the whole intent of what God's law was about. It's all about your heart. Look at these verses here. Matthew 6, 21 says, where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. What I value is what my heart is is after. If you value money, you're consumed with money, that's what your heart goes after. If, If you value Friends, or if you value praise from other people or our acceptance from the world, that's exactly where your heart's going to be. I have to have somebody to affirm me. I see this all the time on Facebook. Somebody's having a tough day, so they post a picture of them with the, you know, the duck lips. You know, just so they get a whole bunch of people going, wow, you're cute. Wow, you're beautiful. Hey, that's great. And that, I look at it, it's how sad. Sitting at home feeling, I need some affirmation from somebody, so I'm going to post these pictures of me so somebody else, maybe people I don't even know. By the way, you do know that most of your, a lot of your friends on Facebook you don't know. You know, I don't know how we get them, but we have them. And oh my God, I've got like 4,200 people on Facebook, and I probably know 300 of them. Anyway, the fact of the matter is I just want people to affirm me, and so I'm, I'm, I'm okay with that. And what your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Now, where's your heart? We come to church. We're getting ready to take the Lord's Supper. Lord, where is my heart? Is my heart intertwined with him? Or is my heart intertwined with something that I want to do? The heart here, when it talks about it in the New Testament and in the Old Testament, it means the center of human life. It's the seat of all desires, feelings, affections, passions, impulses. It's it's. It's kind of like what our mind is, what our soul is. It's, it's our thinking, our will, our volition. It's what I do. It's what I choose to do. It's what I feel good about doing. Psalm 51 says, Lord, create in me a clean heart. Not a clean outward part of my cup here. Not clean actions. But create in me the clean inner man that will then now have my actions governed by my changed person. And renew a steadfast spirit in me, one that is faithful to you, to those you placed around me. Philippians 4, 7 says, And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard my heart 
and my mind, the seat of my emotions and my worry. Oh, God, I don't know what I'm going to do. This is so terrible. This person doesn't like me anymore. This person didn't invite me to the party. And I'm not going to have anybody to, to, to hang around with. And I feel so lonely. And you're not big enough or strong enough. Or I'm not going to get this job. Or the doctor's giving me a bad report. Or, oh, Lord, no. No, the peace of God that people can't even understand, which makes no sense at all, will guard your heart and your mind. How? Through Christ Jesus. John 14, 27. Jesus himself talks about that kind of peace. My peace I leave you, with you. My peace I give you. Not as the world gives you do I give you. Therefore, let not your heart be troubled, neither let it, your heart, be afraid. Proverbs 4, 23. Keep or guard your heart. More than anything, with all diligence, for out of it, my heart, springs the issues of life. Keep it pure. Keep it holy. Keep it from being trampled by a world out there that wants to do nothing but destroy us. Who may ascend into the hill of the Lord? Or who may stand at his holy place? That's a tough question. Who can have access to the Lord Almighty? He who has a clean hands and a pure heart heart. The Beatitudes say that if you have a pure heart that you will see God who has not lifted up his soul to an idol nor sworn deceitfully. And then back to Matthew chapter 5. Blessed are the pure in heart. Not in actions. In heart. For they shall see God. It's a condition of, of our heart. As we've gone through this study on the Holy Spirit, we ended it Basically, last, um, last Tuesday night, by talking about steps that you can go through to experience a filling or a baptism or endure the power on high or um, a renewal of your life or however you want to phrase it. Talked about what it meant to be baptized in the Holy Spirit. And we define that theologically as this. The baptism of or with the Holy Spirit or the filling of the Holy Spirit or being endued with power from on high or um, a revival in your heart. Is, of, is when the Spirit of God comes upon a believer, taking possession of his faculties, imparting to him gifts not naturally his own that we talked about in 1 Corinthians, which, but which qualify him for the service to which God has called him. And what we went through Tuesday is I, I listed um, certain things that must be done, and this, of course, came from R.A. Torrey, who followed D.L. Moody at um, the Moody Church, must be done in our lives in order to be able to receive this incredible experience of being grafted in with the Holy Spirit and have him just permeate who you are. One of the songs that we sang today, I can't remember the word of, you probably remember, let me feel your Holy Spirit. Do you remember that? Uh, yeah, it's exactly what we're talking about here. How do I go about doing that? And if you were here if you were here Tuesday, you'll understand these. If not, they're going to seem confusing. Number one was Repent. Number two was also repent. Tuesday, you would understand. If you weren't here, I'll explain it to you. That is, be baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. Of course, you must follow him in obedience. You must have an intense desire or thirst for the baptism of the Holy Spirit. You must ask, and then you must believe in faith. But the two that I want to talk about is just to repent. The first repent means that you're to repent or change your mind about Christ, about who Christ is. You go from a Christ hater to a Christ lover. You need to give your life to Christ. You need to surrender your all to him. Again, I have no idea the songs that Levi was going to play, but he started out with I surrender, or closed out with I surrender. That's exactly what we're talking about here. I need to know who Christ is. He is not somebody that just is out there and somebody like a genie in a bottle where I get into trouble so I'll pray and he'll come out and grant me three ways. It doesn't work that way at all. I mean, he's the sovereign Lord. He's the son of God. He's creator of the universe. And he's come to choose to live his life in you. Nothing else matters but him. Nothing else matters but him. And I have to change my mind about that. I have to, first of all, see if my salvation is real or if my salvation is just based on some caricature of what Christ is created by the church in order to receive members into their organization. I mean, have you surrendered all to Christ? There's really no other position for the Christian. You can't be a carnal Christian. You can be a Christian that happens to do some carnal things, or, oh, I'm a Christian, but I'm not really sold out. But you're not a believer. 
because there's something that changes, takes place inside of you. We have victory over sin, although we still struggle and sin. But our nature is not to sin. Our nature is to do now righteous things. And when we do sin, contrary to our nature, we're troubled by that. Before we got saved, my nature was to sin. Occasionally I did righteous things. Wow, that was kind of cool. But my, this, my sinning didn't bother me unless, of course, I got caught. And it was some sort of penalty I had to pay. Have you given your entire life to Christ? Are there parts of your life that you're holding on to? And if you have, say, yes, that's me. If I asked you today, can you testify to what Jesus Christ is doing in your life? Some people will say, yes, let me tell you what God's doing. Some people would say, yes, I can, but I don't want to. Why? Well, because I guess it's really not all that powerful. I mean, he's changing us. He's transforming us. He's making us into something new. Are there spiritual gifts? Are there spiritual fruits in your life that he's producing? Are you the same person now you were 20 years ago? How can that be? Jesus says that a good tree produces good fruits, spiritual fruits that only he can do, and a bad tree produces bad fruits. It doesn't work the other way around. And here's the most important one. You can fool us. You can even fool yourself. How about your family? How about your husband, your wife? How about your kids, the people that you hang with? Can they see a difference Christ is making in your life? And if not... Maybe 2 Corinthians chapter 13 is something we need to do today before we take the Lord's Supper. It says to examine yourself to whether or not you're in the faith. Am I really saved? Am I really transformed? Has God really changed my life? I detest myself to see whether that's true. Do you not know yourself that Jesus Christ is in you? Unless indeed you are disqualified which means I think he is, but maybe he's not. I accepted him on my terms, but not on his terms. And his terms are always all or nothing. That's why, and I've told you this a hundred times, baptism, you are dead, buried with Christ and raised to a newness of life. You're not washed and sprinkled. He doesn't make you better. He puts you to death and creates in you somebody brand new. That's the whole born again experience talks about in John chapter 3. You need to repent, first of all, whether or not you truly know Christ. Asking these questions. What spiritual fruit is he producing in your life? What evidence can others see of your love and devotion to the Lord? Are you obedient in following him? Some. Why just some? Do you have daily fellowship with him? Well, you know, I, I try to read my Bible. I'm not talking about reading your Bible every day. We're talking about having fellowship with him. Well, I try to pray occasionally, but, but we're not talking about just praying. We're having a fellowship with him. If you've never had fellowship with him, you're clueless to what I'm even talking about. And once it happens, you realize it's far more than just saying some lame prayer and reading a couple verses each day. If you do have fellowship with him, can you tell me what that time is like? Can you share that experience with others? Can you, can you say, yeah, let me tell you what my time is like with the Lord. It's, it's, it's absolutely incredible. Because when you have times like that, you can't wait to share them with people. But we never do that in church. The one place where it's safe to do it, because I wonder if it's because we many times don't have these fellowship times with him. And there's repent number two. I'll bring this to a close. And that's, you need to change your mind about sin, about sin. We, in our mind, we have black sins and white sins. Black sins are aborting babies, uh, killing people, molesting children, all those really disgusting things. White sins are telling white lies, cheating on our tax returns, um, talking about somebody behind their back. Those are acceptable sins, and these are sins that we want nothing to do with because our culture says these are bad. We don't want to get judged by each other, so we don't do these anymore. These everybody does, so it's okay. But that's not the way it is in Scripture. A sin is a sin. Christ paid for the white sins and the black sins. And sins, irrespective of what they are, Keep you out of heaven. One of the most amazing passages in the book of Revelation. He talks about all the terrible people who aren't going to go to heaven. And then he says, and all liars. Why did you have to put that in there? You ever told a lie? 
Yeah. If I ask you, if you've ever told a lie and you say no, you just told a lie. All lies, Christ's blood covers all those sins, but it's to show us how exact he is in these things. We have to change our mind about sin. We have to renounce each and every one of them as God brings them to memory. And this is hard. I mean, this is hard. I can, I can point out sins in, in Daniel's life, and Daniel can point out some sins in my life that maybe I'm blind to. Sometimes there's a good accountability with that, with husband and wife and kids and friends and stuff of that nature. But when Daniel says, Lord, show me areas of my life that are sinful to you, he will show you them. And they will be what you think are minor things, but to him they're major because they're grieving the Holy Spirit. And if you don't deal with those things, your fellowship with him ends right there, right there. And we've all lived a life like that. And the... And the life in Christ, the abundant life, is, is so much better than that. And then you're going to get stuck with this one. Are there certain sins in your life you refuse to repent of? Well, yes, my anger, my lust, my pride. You know, I'll give some of my pride away to the Lord, things that don't really matter. But the other stuff that means something to me, oh, absolutely. Matter of fact, somebody says something about a particular issue, and I get angry, but that's, just, that's an idol, it's pride. Has the Lord shown you any of these areas that you refuse to repent of and yet refuse to do it? Whether it's a... Anyway. Do you know that according to Christ that your refusal to repent is based on pride, rebellion, and literally is the worst sin in you and me? The worst? It was the sin of pride and rebellion that brought Lucifer low, got him kicked out of heaven. It's what I struggle with more than anything. It's what our society just pumps in us all the time. Pride and pride and pride and pride and pride. You know, do it your own way. Be an army of one. Go for the gusto. You know, do what you want to do. So what's keeping you from a deeper life with him? It's not about Bible study. It's it's not about any of that kind of stuff. Look what it says here. 1 John. It says, if we say we have fellowship with him, I have a relationship with Jesus. I'm a Christian, I love him, and walk in darkness. One is words, one is actions. One is something that I've convinced myself, the other one is how I act on that. If we claim to have fellowship with him and walk in darkness, we lie. And we don't lie about walking in darkness. Everybody can see we walk in darkness. That's no big deal. We lie about really having a fellowship with him, and we do not practice the truth at all, period. But, by contrast, if we walk in the light, to what extent? As he is in the light, then we have fellowship with one another and the blood of Jesus Christ cleanses us from all sins. There's a, it's not works that save you, but the fact is that once you're saved, your body, your life, the essence of your being will now produce spiritual fruit which everyone can see for the glory of the Lord. If you're the same person after you're saved as you were before you're saved, unless you were Jesus Christ before you got saved, the odds are salvation didn't take place. There's a change that takes place, always. Continuing. If we say we had no sin, I'm okay, my sins are not that bad, I'm fine. We deceive ourselves and the truth of Christ is not in us. But if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to do two things. One, forgive us of our sins. And number two, cleanse us from all unrighteousness. To make us like his son. To have righteousness of Christ imputed to us and our sins now imputed to him. And if we say we have not sinned, I don't really need this. I don't need to confess my sins because my sins are not bad. We make Christ a liar and all his word is not in us at all. At all. I'm gonna, we're going to close today by taking the Lord's Supper. And we have done this time and time again. And every time we take the Lord's Supper, we kind of look at the same passages and the same verses and and we kind of miss the point of what the Lord's Supper is all about because it, it, it becomes just a sacrament, an ordinance of the church. 
You know, you get saved, you go get baptized. But we, we miss the fact what baptism is. Baptism is a public affirmation of, of now your relationship with Christ. Baptism is a, is a visible outward expression of what's taking place in your heart. I've come to know the Lord Jesus Christ as my Savior. I have died to my sins. I've been raised in a newness of life. The life I live, I now live in Him. And therefore, I want to show that to the entire world by the act of baptism. Buried with Christ, raised to a newness of life, now walk in Him. When it comes to the Lord's Supper, Jesus is, is there in the upper room, and in, in the course of the, of the meal, there are four cups of wine. Jesus, each, each meaning something. Jesus, at the third cup of wine, of the four-cup session, basically stopped the Passover meal at that time and inaugurated the Lord's Supper. He took the fourth cup, which are the third cup, which is the cup of atonement, which is what he was about to do. And he took the bread and he broke the bread and he passed it among them. And he said, this is my body, which is broken for you. What does that mean? And what does that mean? It means I'm going to go to the cross and I'm going to bear the penalty of your sins on me so that you can have a right relationship with Christ. I, who have committed no sin, are going to be ravished. I'm going to be slaughtered by my Father. And His wrath is going to be poured out on me that deserves to be poured out on you, but it's going to be poured out on me, Jesus said, so that you can satisfy, or I can satisfy the judgment aspect of God through this one act. In the garden, He was so anguished in that that he even asked the Lord, Lord, if it's possible, can we find another way? I don't want to be separated from you or have the wrath of you poured out on me. Nevertheless, it's your will and not my will. He, he was in such agony that he was crying to the point that the capillaries in his forehead burst and he sweat blood. Do you remember? And everybody ran. When we take the Lord's Supper, it's like the Lord says... Here's what we're going to do. We're going to draw a line in the sand. We're going to forget what happened in the past. But before you partake of this sacrifice that Christ made for you, his body broken for you, that you deal with sin in your life. You, you repent of your wrong feelings about him and acknowledge him as who he is. And, and then you repent of your sin and then make sure that those, the repenting of you do is real. It's real. It's, it's not just something we do at church. Hallelujah. It was great and enjoyed the service today, Pastor. Then you go out and do the same thing you've always done. Yell at your wife, beat your kids, whatever it is. It doesn't work that way. We draw a line in the sand and it may know, God, from this point forward, I want my relationship to you to be okay. And he takes the cup. This is a cup of the new covenant in my blood. I will not drink this cup again until I drink it anew with you at the accumulation, accumulation of that covenant in my father's house. It's his blood that was shed. Agonizing. Blood was shed. But Paul gives a warning that has to do with the two repentance that we just looked at. He says this in 1 Corinthians 11. He says, but often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Therefore, whoever eats this bread or drinks this cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner. Oh, it's just an ordinance. It means nothing. I'm not confessing anything. I'm not giving up anything. I'm not surrendering anything. I'm just going to go through this thing so we can have fried chicken in a little while. We'll be guilty of the body and the blood of the Lord, a desecrating the body and the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. Next verse. So what are we supposed to do? Let a man examine himself. That's what we talked about earlier. And so let him eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For he who eats and drinks in an unworthy manner eats and drinks judgment to himself, not discerning the Lord's body. And for this reason, many are weak and sick among you, and many are asleep. Now, in just a moment, I'm going, to, um, I'm going to pray, and we're going to take place, take a, partake of the Lord's Supper. But before we do that, we're going to spend a little time just soul-searching. We're not going to do this corporately, because I can't do it for you, and you can't do it for me. You can only do it for you. And I'm going to ask you if you will pray, and you'll confess your sins to the Lord, and you will give him your anger, or give him your lust, or whatever it is, that you will renew your vows to him, that you'll make sure first and foremost that you're saved before you even partake of this. That you will ask him to give you victory over the sin in your life, no matter how much Bible you think you know. And then we'll partake of this, and 
If you have done business with God, I invite you to join us. If you have not, please do not let peer pressure cause you to bring judgment upon yourself. And I want to I give you a call to what I want you to pray about by letting you watch a two-minute video here. This is John Piper, and I want his words to be the final words that you hear before you have a time of self-examination. I would just ask you, look around in life, in your church, look around. How many Christians do you see bent with all their powers to know God more and more? More truly, more clearly, more sweetly. Or do you see thousands fighting graduate school sins with grammar school knowledge of God? To which some of you would say, whoa, 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 whoa. There are as many PhDs in theology who commit adultery as less educated people. To which I would say, probably more. Why is it that people with PhDs in theology <coughs> commit adultery? They don't know God. You can read theology 10 hours a day, 40 years long, and not know God as beautiful, all-satisfying, highest treasure of your life. Who cares about knowing God the way the devil knows God? He hates everybody. Knowledge of God helps him hate people. We're talking about knowing God here in 1 Thessalonians. They don't know God. They don't know God really as who he is. Infinitely valuable. Infinitely beautiful. Infinitely satisfying. Why your soul was made. There are more pleasures at his right hand, more eternal joys in his presence that you could have in 10,000 sexual trysts. The question is, do you know that? Because if you know that, sin will have lost its dominion in your life. So before we begin, do you know God? You truly know him? And if you do know him, have you surrendered your life to him? Or are there some sins in your life that you just refuse to give up? Because in the great scheme of things, they mean nothing. So I'm going to pray, and I'm going to ask you just to take a few minutes to search your heart out, to examine yourself, to talk to the Lord, to deal with whatever he presents your way. And then once that is done, we will joyfully celebrate the supper with him. Amen? Let me pray.